Would you turn with me or listen on one last time as we read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 as a paragraph, we could call it, or just one statement, a statement of our sonship. And hear God's word. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And again, the new emphasis that we've yet to cover is verse uh, 17, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as ever. Uh, Lord, may we say that this text in some measure is difficult. It it, it presents uh, to us, at least to our flesh, an unhappy theme, that of suffering though together with heirs. Uh, which is surely a happy theme. Uh, Lord, we trust your wisdom. We trust your, your uh, well, your wisdom, Lord. You're, you, you, you are the one who wisely laid out your will in Scripture. And, and we want to know that will. And we want to be instructed of you. And so we ask you, Father, that you would hold forth to us uh, the, all the treasures and all the mysteries that are now revealed not only in Christ, but in us as his people. And would you keep on through your word explaining our experience of him in this world. Amen. Well, if you remember, I, uh, at least in my own Bible, in the way I presented it, I, I bracketed verses 15 and 16. Paul says uh, in verses 9 and 10 uh, of chapter 8 that a believer is someone who's indwelled by the Spirit of God. He's in the Spirit, but the Spirit's in him. That's what he needs to see. And then he expounds upon that in verse 14. He says, those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. So he amplifies the thought. A Christian isn't just someone who's full of the Spirit and thus led by the Spirit. But he's being, uh, as a result of that, he is a, a son. And he may know that he's his son as a result of that. Well, verses 15 and 16, as I see it, having said that, are Paul describing uh, a heightened sense of this, that we are enabled uh, to experience by the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, and who at the same time witnesses to our sonship. Here's a man praying. Here's a man brought to the mountaintop. That's what we were considering. But as we come to verse 17, we are returning in essence to what we dealt with in verse 14, namely a truth to be believed, something that God says is true of a Christian. Well, what's a Christian? A Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Spirit, verses 9 and 10. A Christian is someone who's led by the Spirit and thus a son of God. And because a son, he's able to have these, these experiences of sonship, verses 15 and 16. But, but another thing that Paul now says about the Christian, another truth to be believed, and so we're not talking as much here about experiences, but Paul is preaching to us. He's describing our station. He says that we are heirs. That is the next truth to be believed, to be accepted about ourselves, having been justified by faith. That's all the way back in chapter five, verse one, 
having been adopted into God's family, having been indwelt with the Spirit, being conscious of our sonship. Something else is true of us. He says we're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What's he saying here? Well, we could divide the matter like this. First of all, the relationship of sonship and being an heir. He's drawing the two things together. He's connecting them. He's relating to them. He's saying, if sons, then heirs. That's the thought. If a Christian is a child of God, that means of necessity. And automatically, he's also an heir. He is an heir of a great inheritance. The one thought leads to the next. And so having settled the fact of our sonship, to which the Holy Spirit testifies in us, verses 15 and 16, he comes to the next thought, which is a son is an heir. You can't speak of a son without seeing him at the same time as an heir. He's not just a son of the father, but he's an heir of the father by virtue of his sonship. Indeed, we could say that this is the real glory of adoption. Not simply that the slave has given up his former spirit of bondage. Formerly, he feared his master. He was conscious that he was a slave. But now he's able, by virtue of the spirit of adoption, to relate to his former master as his father, even to cry out to him as father. The fear is gone. Love comes in its place. But not only that, the real glory of adoption is that as a consequence of this, that he is entitled to all the rights and privileges of sonship. You see, he doesn't just relate. It's not just this new relationship. It's this new station. The rights, the privileges of a son. None so great as this, that he is an heir to all the father has. He has a right to an inheritance. So much of the New Testament is written with this in mind. Uh, we found it in Titus. But if, if you were to go, especially through the Pauline letters, you will find that Paul is constantly addressing us as heirs of a great inheritance. As though to say, did you ever realize it? Do you realize it? Have you learned to think of yourself in this way? You've begun to think of yourself as sons. The Spirit is helping you to do so. But have you gone even beyond that? It's amazing to think, and it's amazing even to utter such words, but sonship isn't the greatest thing. It is not the greatest privilege of the Christian. The greatest and the highest privilege is that we are heirs. It's that a great inheritance is promised to us as sons and reserved for us in heaven. Again, that is our station. That is our privilege. It's how we must accustom ourselves to think of ourselves. But in this, we must also see the role of the spirit. Paul isn't just saying uh, reasoning in a straight line. A son is an heir. And so if he's a son of the father, then he's entitled to inherit all that the father possesses. But he's saying something even beyond that. He is speaking of the role of the spirit in this. For Paul has been speaking, well, all chapter long, but especially in verses 9 through 16, that is the preceding verses up to verse 17 of the spirit. The spirit's been the great theme. And it is because Paul is speaking of the fact of the spirit indwelling the believer that makes him think 
of the fact that we are heirs. In other words, it isn't just the fact that we're sons that makes Paul say, you know, we're heirs as well. But it's the fact that we have the spirit that makes him think of this. Now, that's more or less implicit. That is not made explicit here. But it is made explicit in another place. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. This is what he says. In him we have also obtained an inheritance. There you see that emphasis. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You see there Paul is connecting the two things. He says you have you are entitled by virtue of redemption to a great inheritance. And what is it that makes this certain for the believer? And what is it that makes the believer conscious of the fact that he's an heir and he's entitled to this great inheritance? Well, it isn't just the fact that he's a son. That's the first thing. But it is also that he was sealed with the Holy Spirit. By virtue of giving the spirit to the believer, indwelling the spirit or the believer with the spirit. Or or we could say giving the believer the gift of the spirit. God is saying, here is the down payment. Here is the earnest by which you have a right and a title to receive all the rest. To be saved in part is the guarantee of being saved in whole. Uh, the fullness of salvation. Uh, you remember what Paul says in, uh, in, in Romans chapter 8. And it's exactly the same thought. He says, if Christ is in you, this is verse 10. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, he's saying you have the spirit now. You don't have the fullness of salvation. You're still going to die. You've been renewed in the inner man, but not in the outer man. But by virtue of the fact that you have the spirit dwelling in you, you may be sure of the rest. It's sure to come. It's coming. He says the same thing later on in Romans chapter 8, verses 23. Uh, let's see here. Verse, well, just verse 23. He says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. It's the same thought. The spirit's the earnest. He's the down payment. He's the first fruits. He's the first installment which guarantees the rest. The spirit is in you not only as a, as a pledge of your sonship, but of your inheritance. But then as a second thought, we might ask this question, and that is heirs of what? We've seen that a Christian is an heir and that he is entitled to this great inheritance. But what is his inheritance? How does Paul describe it? You know, he doesn't always define it, but here he does. He says that we're heirs of God. It's a very interesting phrase. Why this addition? Robert Haldane is so bold as to suggest that Paul says that we're heirs of God in, in order to indicate that God himself is our inheritance. But I confess I wonder. I wonder if that's right. Is it not better to say 
that when Paul says that we're heirs of God, what he's indicating is that as sons of the Father, that we are entitled to an inheritance from the Father. God is our Father. Thus, we're heirs of God. He's the one who will give us our inheritance. All that he has, he will soon give to us. I think it might be better to put the thought like that. Listen to how Peter puts it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There's amazing parallels here between these verses and what Paul is saying. Do you notice how he connects, for instance, the idea of sonship and the idea of being an heir? He says, this is Peter, God has caused us to be born again. He's received us into his family. And what is the result? To what end has he made us sons? To the end that we might be heirs. To an inheritance, Peter says, reserved in heaven, kept by the power of God, and so on. And here's the point that Peter is making and that I believe Paul is making when he says that we are not only heirs, but we're heirs of God. He's saying that God is the one who promises this inheritance. He is the one who grants this inheritance. And thus he is the one who guarantees this inheritance. And as a result of this, Peter says, it is kept in heaven. It's reserved in heaven. For us by God himself, none other than God himself. In other words, it isn't man who makes the promise. It isn't the power of man that preserves it or guarantees it. It's all a matter of God. It's a matter of his word. It's a matter of his power. It's a matter of his promise. And if this is so, you ought to realize that our inheritance is absolutely safe. There isn't anything in all the world that can rob the Christian of his inheritance. Not Satan. Not the powers of the world, not even himself, not even his sin. There is nothing that can take this inheritance from us. It is absolutely assured to the believer. And so Christians need not be in any doubt about it. Who can rob us of it? Uh, of it? Who can take it from us? Who can keep us from inheriting it? You see, that is the thought that is involved in the phrase heirs of God. And such becomes the thought once we realize that this inheritance comes from God and not from man. You see, if it came from man, you might be in jeopardy of losing it. An heir of a man might fail to inherit his inheritance, but not the heir of God. We're talking about God himself, his promise, the inheritance he promises, the inherit, inheritance that he keeps and reserves, the inheritance that he gladly gives to all of his children. So it's better to think of this inheritance as something that's kept in heaven for us. I'm disagreeing with Haldane. It isn't God himself. It's what God gives to us once we enter into heaven. It's what's coming to us. It's our very entrance into heaven and what awaits us there. That's the inheritance. It is, if you like, and I'll later expand upon this thought, it is what Christ himself inherited when he entered into heaven and finished his race. And thus what is promised to us and 
what the Spirit seals to us as an earnest and a pledge. Why is this important to see? Why is it not enough simply to say and to see that we are sons? Why must we go beyond that and say of ourselves as Christian people that we are heirs and that an inheritance is coming to us and that it is being kept in heaven even now by the power of God? Well, it is because there are few things that so capture the essence of the Christian outlook in this world than this thought of being heirs. I would go so far as to suggest that even uh, saying that we are sons does not capture this thought. But when you add the thought that we are heirs, well, then it does. Because a son might be entitled to think that all things are his even now. But once you speak of him as an heir, then you place certain things in the future. You cause him to realize that he doesn't yet possess all things. What is the essence of the Christian outlook? The essence of the Christian outlook is hope. If we look at what is said in Hebrews, for instance, we find in that great chapter on faith, it describes faith in terms of hope. Hope of what's coming to us, hope of what is promised to us and what is sure to us, but we do not yet possess. This is what it said. These all died in faith, verse 13, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Faith there is characterized by hope more than anything else. A hope which is sure. These men were certain. They knew it was coming to them. They embraced it from afar, but they didn't yet possess it. And so they were pilgrims and they were strangers on this earth. They were heirs of a great inheritance, but they hadn't yet come into possession of it. You see, in a sense, their lot for the time being was that of poverty until they came to inherit true riches. We find the same thought in Romans chapter 8, I read verse 23. Let me go on. He says, verses 24 and 25, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Again, it is the same thought. The truth is, and this is what we have to grapple as sons and even as heirs, that the best things are not promised to us in this life. Great things are held forth to the believer, but not in this life. The best things that are promised to us and even assured to us are held out as something future, something to look forward to. Indeed, the only thing that Christ actually promises to believers in this life that they can be sure of, their lot for the time being is suffering. More on that later in the text. Well, The best things, the great things, is something that is promised but not yet possessed. Something that we see uh, from afar. And it is this more than anything else that necessitates faith. Faith seen as hope. For as Paul says once again, hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. He might as well have said faith. Uh, in place of hope every time there we live by faith not by sight we don't see the things that are promised to us but we are looking for them eagerly and earnestly that's the outlook of the christian 
the outlook of faith, the outlook of hope. Now, let me try to balance that point out. Does that mean that the believer enjoys nothing of God in this life? That our position is one of of utter poverty and that everything that is promised to us uh, is future? Certainly not. That would be to deny almost everything that Paul has said up to this point in Romans uh, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. I think I will agree with Haldane here. He makes a very helpful distinction. He says the believer enjoys God now by grace and soon he will enjoy God in glory. It's the difference between grace and glory. By grace we enjoy God even now. We enjoy him, let us see, by way of foretaste. By way of the spirit whom he's given to us. And as he is a spirit of adoption, so he becomes to us, as we've seen, the spirit of assurance. But even then you ask, assured of what? What is it that the spirit is assuring the believer of? Well, certainly he is assuring the believer that even now he is a son of God. There's something present by grace that he's enjoying. But even beyond that, the believer may in this life be assured of all that is coming to him. Let us not, in other words, limit the doctrine of assurance to what we are sure of now. That is not how Paul presents it. And increasingly in Romans chapter 8, we will see that the doctrine of assurance is presented to us in terms of the glory that awaits us. And of that, Paul says, even now the believer might be sure in this life. The believer is sure of all that is coming to him. And do you see that that in itself is a great blessing for the present? For I may suffer many things for the present, but they are as nothing compared to the glory that awaits me. Verse 18. And as I wait, I do so with certainty, the certainty of hope. All that is promised to me that I will one day inherit in heaven. I am sure of it even now before I have it. Not just you see that I'm justified and that I'm a son of God. But the certainty that I am sure to go to heaven and dwell with God forever, even before I come to possess this great and everlasting possession, I am sure that it is mine and that it's coming to me. And that indeed is the very glory of the Christian position. The certainty he has, uh, I say again, not only with regard to his justification and his sonship, present blessings, but what are the consequences What are the inevitable outcomes of this? For if I am a son, that means I'm also an heir. And if I'm an heir, then I may be sure that this great inheritance is coming to me. And while we wait, and indeed while we suffer, we rejoice because we're sure of it. We look eagerly with hope, the hope of faith. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. You remember we've been having been justified by faith. Nearly the, the next thing he says though it isn't quite the next thing. He says we rejoice in hope of glory. And there he's really saying the same thing. Our greatest joys and thus our greatest happiness is kept for us in heaven. But, but, but while we wait for these things. While we look for them in hope. We are rejoicing. Because we're sure that they're coming to us. And so it's like this, Paul is saying. He's speaking to those who are sons and who know that they're sons. He says that salvation, considered as a complete entity, is like a great inheritance for which we eagerly wait until we possess it. We are saved now only in part, but to be saved in part is to be guaranteed of the whole. 
And until we possess the fullness of salvation, our hope is set upon it. Our hope is not set upon this world. It is not even set, I I say, uh, upon our present portion of Christ. It's even greater than that. Our hope is set upon the inheritance and the glory of heaven. Think of how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, store up your treasure in heaven. Do you understand something of what Paul is saying when we say God is storing our inheritance in heaven. He's keeping it by his power. He's reserving it for us. And Jesus is saying, that's where you set your heart. That's where you place your treasure. Not on this earth, but in heaven. And as you do so, you begin to embrace it from afar. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. And even begin by faith to possess such things even now. All of this has a way of determining the outlook of the Christian. He's a pilgrim. He's a stranger. He's a citizen of heaven. He longs to be there. But even now, by faith, he begins to possess it. But that brings me to the third point. Namely, how did we become heirs? And if we look at what Paul is saying here, if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He's saying That we've become heirs together with Christ. We're joint heirs with Christ. You see, here's the point. The point is this. He's the heir. Jesus Christ is the heir. When you think of who it is who has a right and a title to heaven. Who is entitled to this inheritance. By right. The answer is Jesus Christ. He's the heir. He's the heir by virtue of who he is, the very son of God. And even beyond that, as a matter of promise, the heir, according to promise, made to Abraham. He's the promised seed, Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And what Paul is saying is that we are made heirs along with him. He's the true heir, we with him, by virtue of our share in him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Well, look at it like this. Go back to Adam, as Paul himself likes to do, and realize that Adam was a son. And thus, we can also say of Adam, though it isn't said explicitly, that Adam was an heir. We can apply the same logic to Adam in the garden that we apply to ourselves, if sons, then heirs. Adam in the garden was an heir. He hadn't yet come to inherit what was coming to him, but it was something that was promised to him on a condition. And had he fulfilled that condition, had he finished his course under the covenant of works, what we could say of Adam is that he would have inherited something even more glorious than he already possessed. And by the way, that's why it's wrong ever to say that uh, the garden was analogous to heaven. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Something even more glorious than the garden was promised to Adam. And Adam forfeited that by his disobedience. He gave up a right and a claim to his inheritance. Because he was under a covenant of works. But thank God, Luke tells us, and indeed all of the Bible tells us, that he wasn't the only son. For there was also the Son of God, whom God, Hebrews tells us, appointed the the heir of all things, In fact, it's fascinating. Let me just read it to you. Uh, In Hebrews, twice he's mentioned as an heir. At the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom he also made the world's verse four, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. There we find, once again, the teaching, as I suggested earlier, that Jesus Christ is the heir. The question that we have is, how did he come to possess all things as the heir? How did he inherit them? And the answer which Hebrews gives in Hebrews chapter 2 is through what he suffered. Having made himself a little lower than angels for a time in the likeness of men. This is what he says. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering uh, of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom all the uh, all things and by whom all are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren and he goes on verses 14 through 15 inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage what's he saying he's saying that jesus christ delivers the sons from bondage through what he suffered. And really he's saying he delivered the slaves and made them sons by what he suffered. And by what he suffered he inherits for them what Adam forfeited. Which he describes as bringing many sons to glory. The point is he's the son. And thus he's the heir of all. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. But look at this heir. Look at who he is. Look at what he does. And realize as Hebrews chapter 2 says that. This son and this heir joins his lot with ours. He makes himself like, a, like us and he calls us brothers and so we are. And if his brothers, that means we too are sons of God. And if sons, then heirs as well. You see, that's the teaching. He suffered for us in order to bring many sons to glory. First he made us sons. Then he went into glory and he brings us there with him. He causes us to inherit this great inheritance along with him. Joint heirs with Christ. But that brings us to the next thought. And that is a thought that will be with us uh, for some time. Let me begin to introduce it here. Namely that of suffering is the final point. He says in Hebrews chapter 8. Joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The question that we have here is, how did we get from heirs as sons to suffering? Have we here ceased to reason in a straight line? Clearly, from son to heirs is a straight line, but from heirs to suffering, well, what's going on here? Certainly, we can say that Paul is introducing a new theme that he will develop up to verse 25, Verses 18 through 25 as a new paragraph is taken up with the theme of suffering. But how did we get from heirs to suffering? Well, it should be said, first of all, that Paul is not stating a condition 
so much as he is supposing a fact. This word if could really be translated since. Since children, then heirs. And, uh, and since the heirs are made to suffer in this life, then glory. As Dr. Gaffin puts it, it is the givenness of suffering that is being stressed here as, as elsewhere in Paul. But what is it that makes this a logical statement? How did we get from heirs to suffering and then from suffering to glory? Let us admit at first blush that this presents an apparent contradiction. One which we all know well in our experience. The thought is this. If we are sons, if we are heirs, if we are beloved, then why am I made to suffer? Now, the answer to that question is going to take more than the end of the sermon. It's going to take... Uh, the sermons that we'll see in verses 18 through 25. But for now, I begin to answer the question in terms of verse 17, relating our, our present suffering with our position as heirs. Paul relates the two thoughts. He is, in fact, reasoning in a straight line. He is connecting them. Thinking of our lot as heirs makes us think of the fact that we suffer. For it is precisely as we are made to suffer... At the present time that we need to be reminded of what's coming to us. You see, it's to the person who's suffering that you say, do you realize that you're an heir or have you forgotten it? As you're enduring the suffering of the present time, what you need to do, he'll say in verse 18, is to compare, compare what you're, you're experiencing now to what's coming to you. The glory that's coming, verse 18. And so the emphasis on the future inheritance is meant to help those who are subjected to present suffering. They're reminded that the future will be far better than the present. To be an heir involves this of necessity. It means we've, we haven't yet begun to enjoy the best things. They're still held out to us in the future. And so, of course, for the present, we might suffer, if only a little while. But another reason he relates these two thoughts is that suffering is what prepares us for glory. It's actually suffering that makes us conscious that we're heirs. It's what reminds us that heaven is our home and where we long to be. The man who's got everything going for him thinks only of this world. That's the trouble. But the father deals wisely with us as sons. He breaks our love of the world through sufferings. But even beyond this, the inheritance itself is made sure to us by what we suffer. It's made sure through sufferings. Sufferings are what confirm to us that we are heirs and that the inheritance is sure to come to us. How so? Because suffering here is defined not in the abstract. And indeed, this will be a question that we are, will explore together. What does he mean by suffering? But notice here at least that suffering is not defined in the abstract, but it is defined in exactly the same way as the inheritance. Namely, in connection with Jesus Christ himself. It's not only joint heirs with him, but it's also suffering along with him. Yes, and he's the heir, and yet he suffered all his life in this world. And do we expect that it will be different for us? Jesus himself tells his disciples, as they treated me, so they'll treat you. And so that has uh, in itself a tendency to confirm our place as his disciples, as those who are like him, that we receive the same treatment from the world as he did. And yet that's not the full truth as Paul presents it here. For Paul here goes beyond that. He's talking about God's treatment of the son, the heir. And the teaching is this. 
As God made his own son to pass through many sufferings before he entered his glory, so too we. You see, that is what confirms our status as sons and heirs. It's that, it's that God is treating us in exactly the same way. He's subjecting us, if you like, to exactly the same pattern. He's making us walk the same road as, as his son. And that not only has a way of confirming the fact that we are sons, but it also makes the outcome certain. For, for, for walking the same road as our Savior and elder brother Jesus We may be sure that the same things that awaited him await us, namely the very glory of heaven, which Paul here calls our our inheritance. We, along with Jesus, through many sufferings and through what we suffer, will enter into the promised rest and inheritance. And do you see, that's the teaching, that's the full teaching. Not just that what we suffer confirms our place as sons, but it confirms equally where we're going. That God will bring us along with his son into the same place. The very glory that was promised to him. The very glory that he entered into at the end of his sufferings is made sure to the believer. Yes, and think of Jesus once more. Think of what is said of him in Hebrews chapter 12. As the author and finisher of our faith, or as another translator puts it, I prefer this. He's the captain. He's the leader. He's the one who's marching on and we following him. And he's gone before us. He's gone into heaven. He's inherited all things. And he's leading us there along with him. Not apart from sufferings, but through them. And we along with him enter into glory in just exactly the same way as he did. And so Peter says, I won't read it. I know I filled up the time. I'm just about done. Peter says, don't think it's something strange. Don't think it's something that's uh, that's unusual that you should be subject to the same treatment as Christ. Indeed, you ought to see it as sharing in his life, which was a life of suffering. You are being conformed to the son. You have fellowship with him in his sufferings, Paul says. Philippians chapter three. Oh, there's nothing strange here, Peter says. It's the very glory of a Christian. His glory is this, his likeness to his master, sharing in his lot. As the world treated me, so it will treat you. Oh, but it's something even beyond that. It's not just as the world treated him, so you will be treated. But it's as the father treated the son, so he'll treat you. And the father subjected the son to many sufferings. He endured endured great things in this life. But don't just look at that. Look at the outcome. Look where he went and look where he's bringing us. And so forget about the world for a minute and think solely of the father. There is no greater honor that the father can bestow upon his children than that they should be made to conform to his own son, his his only begotten and made conformable to him in this life and in the next. All the while confirming their status as true sons who are made like his only begotten. And if we share with him in his sufferings. From the Father, we too will have a share in his glory. And so all of this is a matter of assurance. It's a matter of certainty. That's the overall teaching in Romans chapter 8. And it is made sure to us in this way. God is making it clear to us that we are sons and thus heirs. Not by making our lives easy. That's the devil's work. That's what the devil likes to do. He likes to delude us by comforting us. By making things easy, by prospering us. No, God makes it certain to us that we are sons and thus heirs by making the disciple like the master. By conforming the adopted sons to the firstborn sons. 
in that we are made to suffer with him so that we may also be glorified together with him. Do you see, beloved, how all of this is ultimately a matter of comfort and assurance to the believer? And yet we can say, and I think we'll have opportunity to say over and again as we consider this subject of suffering, how easily we are discouraged by what we suffer. By the many trials and hardships that we face in this life. But God is saying to us, you ought not to be discouraged. You ought to be encouraged. You ought to be comforted. You ought to look to Jesus Christ and follow him where he's going. And realize that the very things that he has inherited through sufferings are promised to you. Oh yes, the apostle said in Acts, we will enter the kingdom of heaven through many trials, through many tribulations. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says. Don't be so downcast and discouraged. For great is our reward in heaven. Such is the thought of the disciple, even as he suffers. For he is like his master, and he shares in his lot, both in this life and in the next. Amen. And let us come to the table together. I want to look at Luke chapter 22. Words of institution. Luke chapter 22. Let's see. Verse 14. When the hour had come, there's something unique about Luke's portrayal of this that I want to highlight. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave it to his uh, and gave thanks rather and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Well, I want to, for the next five weeks, uh, not connect uh, this to. The sermon so much as go through the book of order in a very simple way. Uh, The book of order, or or rather the uh, directory of worship, uh, describes the meaning of the nature of the meaning and nature of the sacrament under five headings. It doesn't actually enumerate them, but as I as far as I can tell, there are five teachings. And so I want to look at those five teachings very briefly together over the next five weeks, God willing. And this is what it says first. Now, I'm going to say this and you're going to say, well, what about this? What about that? Well, wait for the next teaching. I don't want to say it all at once. We're just looking at one of five truths. Our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance to be observed by his church until he comes again. It's not a re-sacrificing of Christ, but is a remembrance. That's what I want to emphasize first. It's a remembrance of the once for all sacrifice of Christ himself in his death for our sins. Now, you say... Is that all it is? And no, that it's not. It's not only that. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. 
Is it a bear memorial? No, it isn't. We'll look at that next time. It's something beyond that. And it's the Zwinglian teaching that says it's a bear memorial. And Luther and Calvin said, no, no, that's not right. It's something far more. But let us see and let us not overreact uh, in response to Zwingli. And, 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 and we find Zwinglianism in, in a lot of the low church settings today. Let us see that it is a memorial. That Christ is bidding the church to remember him. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, as long as we're doing this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Well, in a sense, what we're doing is we're preaching by our actions. We're saying, this is what we believe. We believe that Jesus is coming again, but we also believe that he died for us. And we are expressing our faith to each other and to the world in that death by our partaking of the Lord's Supper. And the thing that the Lord's Supper Uh, especially highlights and focuses for the believer is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, which was broken and shed for you. That's why Paul focuses on that in in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, the one who comes unworthily is the one who is despising the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But these things are set before you in a sacramental way. And what, what he is setting before you, what Christ is setting before you is something to remember. Remember that Christ died for you, beloved. Always remember that. Always see that as the focus of your faith. And let the Lord's Supper nourish your faith by way of remembrance. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. That's the teaching. More, more to be said in, in weeks to come. But for now, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful indeed for, for, for your Son, whom you gave for us and whom you call us every week and indeed every day to remember. Lord Jesus, we remember what you did for us. We look back upon it with tremendous thanksgiving in just the way the Old Testament saints look forward. Well, we look back. We anticipate many things from you, indeed, our inheritance. But for the time being, uh, I mean, for this moment, we are we are looking back. We are thankful for what you've done. And we're acknowledging that we can only be saved because of our share in what you've done for us. You've joined us to Christ, Father. You've enabled us to share in his death, just as you'll enable us to share in his life. Lord, that's what a Christian is, and that's what we confess that we are. And, and, and so let us come to you, O God, in that faith, the faith of a remembrance, the faith of a, thanks, a thankful heart, the faith which acknowledges that my salvation depends upon what this man did 2,000 years ago the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, and ask that you might be present with us by your Spirit, even as we do so. And let us not come in an unworthy manner, O God. Let us come with hearts full of faith and assurance. Amen.